Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Colm O'Mungan, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin, with a bit of bonus material for you at the start of the week. Last week, Claire Fox, MEP for the northwest of England with the Brexit Party, delivered an address at the Institute for International and European Affairs in Dublin. Now, she outlined her views on what motivated the Leave vote, amongst other things. And I sat down for, for a bit of a look back and a bit of a look ahead. Now, it doesn't cover absolutely everything, the recent election result or anything else, but it does get into what she believes the motivation behind the Leave vote was and maybe some of the next steps and how she'll be watching them as the Tory party gets the withdrawal agreement bill through the Houses of Parliament and goes on and conducts negotiations with the European Union. Have a listen. So I'm Claire Fox. I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas who's had a temporary foray into elected politics and therefore I'm the Brexit Party member of the European Parliament for the northwest of England. And soon to be full-time director of the Institute Ideas again. Indeed. Indeed, right, okay. So, broadly speaking, uh, for people who didn't get the benefit of, of your talk in the Institute of International and European Affairs here in Dublin, you were talking about the phenomenon of the Leave vote. And you believe there are some popular misconceptions about the motivation of Leave voters, insofar as you can characterise a group of people acting with diverse motivations. What would you say is the strongest common thread amongst the Leave voters that you identified in the course of your campaigning? The take back control slogan that was the kind of official Leave slogan in 2016 had an incredible resonance and people felt, I think, oh yeah, we haven't got control over our lives. You know, we are not in control of our destiny. We've been basically sidelined and told that our views are not that important. And so if you want, the thing that unites everybody was a kind of recognition that this would be an opportunity to reinvigorate democracy. And it was a kind of kickback against a technocratic, top-down, bureaucratic approach to politics. And by the technocratic, top-down approach to European politics, you listed as one of your diagnoses of how people feel this way, that in some way the uh, British establishment political establishment and others had taken ideas they had in common with other members of European elites and almost laundered them through Brussels to be imposed on on the people of the UK. Would you just uh, elaborate on on that particular point? Yeah, I think that there's been a a fair amount of outsourcing going on. You know, certainly the legislation that comes from Brussels is not a foreign imposition. That was what I was trying to emphasise, you know, and sometimes... My own side, on the Eurosceptic side, can almost see it in that way or present it that way. But that would be a misunderstanding, I think. Every government um, through the council uh, does have an opportunity to bring to it ideas. And it's a way of um, taking important social, political ideas and persuading a group of fellow elites rather than persuading your own population and then bringing it back home and presenting it as a fait accompli. So you basically say it's not us that did it, you know, it's blame the EU, not us. Freedom of movement's a very good one on that, or, you know, a lot of the kind of deregulated freedoms associated with uh, things that people find objectionable about the assault on sovereignty were actually British ideas in the first place, (laughs) came out of Margaret Thatcher's government and subsequent governments, ironically. So that's an interesting phenomena, I think, because it, it... you know, just like if you work for, I don't know if you've ever had this, but if you work for a big company 
and they bring in the consultants. You know, they kind of say, we're brought in McKinsey or whoever, and they're going to take a look around and they're going to decide what we're going to do. And often McKinsey tells the company to do what the company wanted to do, but you can blame McKinsey. That's what it's like. Could I put it to you that maybe one of the issues that has left British people feeling like they have no voice is the first-past-the-post voting system. There isn't competition within constituencies for people to maintain the affections of their voters. People don't stay in touch with them. Something maybe politicians at this side of the water are criticised for is clientelism, which often politicians argue is it's just being in, in touch with my constituents. So perhaps PRSTV might have addressed a lot of the problems and feelings of resentment you would have identified in the course of your campaign. You would have a diversity of candidates, you would have people catering to more views, you would have a diversity of MPs, and people competing with each other within constituencies, and therefore staying in touch with their constituents. So what's been interesting about the vote for Brexit has been that it raised those questions as well. So the point about identifying the problem of the EU as a technocratic barrier to popular sovereignty has been that it's alerted people to popular sovereignty. And actually, the inability of the British establishment or the refusal of them to implement Brexit has raised all those questions. So for the first time that I can remember, there's a serious discussion about first-past-the-post as being inadequate and that the Houses of Parliament no longer reflect, actually, the possibility of anything other than the two-party system, you know, that that would be... Now, you could say, oh, well, you could have had it around that first, and there actually was a referendum on that, and nobody voted in it, actually, and it lost, and nobody voted. It was a very small turnout. But I think that's a real live possibility. By the way, for the first time ever, there's a serious discussion about abolishing the House of Lords. I mean, who knew that was going to happen? And, in, and so what Brexit's done is it's raised all these important democratic questions. And that's brilliant to me because what I was arguing at 2016 time and what I think has become even more intense is what we need to do is to kickstart democratic uh, life again because it's, it, it had fallen apart. And the freeing up of the... Uh, the, the, the population to say, right, we're now going to use this as a way of, of changing the way democratic uh, institutions are organised means that I think we can expect to see some change. The main thing was is that the people who argued to remain in the European Union, and I didn't say this in the speech and I probably should have done, didn't give positive arguments for staying in the European Union. They scaremongered about what would happen if we left. But the people who voted to uh, ask people to vote leave also scaremongered about hordes of Turks arriving into the country, posters showing long lines of, of migrants that the UK would have had control over either way. And they also perhaps sold leaving on the basis of there wouldn't be a lot of adjustment. Nigel Farage, for example, pointed to examples like Switzerland and Norway that then became cardinal sins when those models of Brexit were argued for after the result of the referendum. But, I mean, to deal with the fear point first, hordes of migrants will arrive on our shores. Yeah, and that was... was That was terrible. But the interesting thing that that also I should clarify is that um, actually, although Nigel Farage has been a very influential figure in the UK, he did not win the European, the vote to leave the European Union. So what happened was that the influence of Nigel Farage's UKIP was what brought about the Tories to call the referendum because they were under pressure, partly because of that. Um, But actually, in the referendum period, 
all the official leave parties, and, and, and I mean, I include the one run by Michael Gove and, and, and Boris Johnson, kind of lost control of the leave vote. What happened was it became a popular rank-and-file sort of movement. People started having their own meetings. They weren't kind of going around quoting hordes of Turkish immigrants coming in. That poster was infamous. It was absolutely one of the things that made me very much pause in terms of whether I'd stand in a party run by Nigel Farage because of that poster, right? It was a vile uh, attempt at whipping up fear, and I agree with you. As it happens, I don't think that's why people voted to leave the European Union. The reason I was saying about there didn't, the, the Remain case didn't make a positive case wasn't, to, it wasn't that point. What I'm saying is people didn't necessarily hear pro-EU arguments, but they did hear a lot of reasons why we should stay. And the thing that was argued was for the status quo. And so people kept saying, you know, we don't want to be too disruptive. So I remember George Osborne giving a famous speech where he said it would be like jumping off a cliff edge and we won't know what the future is. Now, you could say, well, that sounds like scary, we won't know where the future is. But actually, if you think the status quo is good, you'd go along with that. If you think the status quo is rubbish, you won't. And also, taking a leap of faith has been what has brought around the most progressive changes historically. You sometimes think you wouldn't have entrepreneurship. You'd never have flown a plane. I mean, somebody has to have an imaginative leap. And so one of the things that happened was that people were rejecting the status quo and saying things have got to get shaken up and change. And in that sense, the Leave vote was about change. It was about things being done differently. So Boris Johnson, the withdrawal agreement bill, looks like it's going to be passed. The first stage of Brexit, the leaving bit, will happen on the 31st of January. And then there are negotiations with the European Union. Do you have a view on, take for example, a close aligned relationship with the European Union? Do you view that as not Brexit? Or do you have a very firm, defined view that it must be absolute hard Brexit, WTO terms, caught as many ties as possible with the European Union? Well, certainly I would prefer WTO terms myself, but I, I think the main thing is, is that um, this idea of a close alignment is actually doing things as the EU does them without uh, disruption. So as I've just made the point about, it's about changing everything. I think it's very important, and actually one of the reasons why Boris Johnson eventually was trusted with Brexit in the general election was because he started to emphasise very much that he wouldn't go along with and that his deal, which is very similar to Theresa May's deal in lots of ways, as we know, and that's problematic for, for a lot of leavers. Um, but he did say, no, if we don't get the agreement by the end of 2020, we'll just go, and also we won't have a level playing field. And the point that's important about that is not that you don't want to get on with the EU, but you want to make the decision about which rules and regulations you accept or reject. And, but there are consequences to a decision about the rules you accept and reject, and the consequences of that are access to the single market based on the standards of goods, labour standards, environmental standards, etc., that the EU are, are, are prepared to accept. So looking at the consequences of that, are you prepared to accept the consequences of the amount of divergence you might favour? Yes, and I think other people are too. I think that's what just was voted for in the general election, and I actually think that's what was voted for in the referendum, because constantly throughout that period, it was the Remain side who were the dominant side and had the greatest voice in that referendum period who emphasised 
what the consequences would be if we left the European Union, and it would be disastrous. But you're making, you're again, the, the, the danger here is that we reduce leaving the European Union to a trade relationship, right? It is more than that decision was not just about trade. So but what that, that decision arguably has been made. It, it will be a trade relationship. We're now into the phase where the trade relationship will be established and the nature of that yeah. trade relationship has certain consequences. So this is no longer an argument about Brexit. It's about the argument of the nature of the trading relationship. Exactly, but what I'm saying is, consequently, it's very important, I think, for people to understand that because of the desire for autonomy and making decisions that are democratically accountable at home, a trade relationship might, I understand, not be ideal in terms of trade, but because of the political demand for controlling what regulations and so on that we have, I think people would be prepared to sacrifice some of that trading relationship. And also are optimistic about the possibility of trading relationships with other countries, but it's not just about a trading relationship. I know that the I know the negotiations are. I'm simply pointing out if the political outcome of that trading uh, discussion is going to be overly close alignment, but dictated by Ursula von der Leyen and the negotiators, that will be seen to be not Brexit. How now, with a majority behind Boris Johnson, will Boris Johnson? be held to account. There's already a debate about what will the Brexit look like, how will he keep the union together in terms of trying to keep Scotland on board with a large amount of Remain voters there, trying to mine the manufacturing in your constituency in the north of England. How would you keep an eye on Boris Johnson or try and hold him to the model of Brexit that you think is in the interests of your soon-to-be erstwhile constituents? So I think that one of the things that Boris Johnson and the Tories have, which is uncharted territory, got to deal with is that they have got this huge majority in the House of Commons which people wanted to defeat the Remain Alliance because that became almost the focus of everyone was to stop the Remain Alliance. And I think it's important that listeners understand that many Remainers agreed with that because they didn't want this kind of Remain Alliance in Parliament that were constantly thwarting, as it were, the voters and that that had become a real problem and it had created a, basically a zombie parliament that was unaccountable and, and, and that was unacceptable to people. So in order to defeat the Remain Alliance he's had the loan of millions of votes that are not naturally conservative, they have not become Tories overnight, there's no guarantee he's going to retain their support. That has an enormous pressure on the Conservative Party to have to change. Now I don't know if it's going to do that or not. But it's got to face those voters regularly, right? And it's now got a set of MPs in constituents that they don't think that the Tory party even knew where they were in many instances. It's only unvisited them often. And suddenly they've got to go. They have MPs in those places. So now we've got a newly mobilised and, I'd say, politicised electorate. I think that the force of democracy, the force of democratic pressure, might well keep him under control in a way where doing deals behind closed doors aren't quite as straightforward as it used to be. And also people are now very scared because one of the things that's happened is Theresa May sounded good for a while on the leave question and then they trusted her and then she came back with checkers and everyone went, oh my God, we've been sold out for years, right? They've been doing this ridiculous thing behind closed doors. So there's much more of an attempt and I, and I keep hearing people saying this, you know, we might have voted for him we have voted for him. We trust him to deliver. But if he doesn't, 
And you just think, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's like, if he doesn't, it's different. These aren't Tories, these are the voters. And so I think that that does create new territory. Now, it's not perfect, because there will be deals done behind closed doors. There won't be any formal representation from the UK in any European institutions while these deals are being done. And we're going to all have to be very canny to check what's going on. But I don't think that they can just get away with a sellout. And politically speaking, when whatever deal is done, what's your, what personally for you would be the next establishment target, having r rid Britain potentially of what you see as this technocratic edifice of the European Union? What's the next break on the popular sovereignty within the UK? What great behemoth of an institution would you like to see torn down in the interests of the people? Well, I, that makes me sound like the worst kind of uh, lunatic populist, doesn't it? You know, that I'm wandering around looking for my next target. But I think that there are, you know, the growth of the quango culture, whole swathes of institutions that have a disproportionate amount of power and almost their own kind of rule book about how society should be run. Uh, um, um, everything from, uh, you know, local, a lot of local authorities or the big kind of uh, institution. I, I write for a local authority magazine, so to just give you one example, you know, there's a kind of big discussion about how they're going to introduce um, diversity training and unconscious bias training for firefighters and anyone who doesn't uh, learn the lingo uh, and, and indulges in banter is going to be have their jobs reviewed and you do think oh they haven't learned a thing these people but what anyway, about the house of lords oh, oh the house of lords has to go that has to go but what i'm saying is that it's not just the obvious one so first past the post house of lords definitely voting reform the postal voting systems just become completely ridiculous what was set up as a very sensible thing for elderly people or the infirm or people who are on holiday to vote has now become a kind of corrupting influence and everybody knows that but i'm just saying that there's there's more to it and what i'm trying to indicate is that i think that we need to be more honest and open and frank and not frightened to speak our minds about as it were not allowing the orthodoxies of the day to just silence us. Because if you say the wrong thing on certain questions in the UK, everything from the trans question through to discussions on, on, um, oh, you know, on free speech or anything, you can actually be called out as a bigot and really, you know, it's an unpleasant atmosphere. People are walking on, on eggshells. So, But if you hang around with people like Nigel Farage who put up posters that were, by your own definition, vile, don't people look at your motivation when you argue for free speech and think that you're not just making an argument motivation-free for free speech, you're making an argument for a particular type of speech under the veil of free speech? Yeah, I, I've heard that argument so much. I mean, it's absolutely uh, scurrilous. You know, people who argue for free speech only want free speech so they can be bigots. And when you say if you hang around with Nigel Farage, I mean, it's a, a, an interesting way of looking at it. The Labour Party for example, in my lifetime, introduced virginity tests for Asian women coming into the country. Only had a slogan in, 19, in 2015 of British jobs for British workers. The Labour Party itself is an anti-Semitic organisation, institutionally, according to some people. Never mind the Tories. Sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying by, no, your, by your own analysis, you said that a poster put up by your own party was vile. No, it wasn't my own party. It wasn't my own party. I've been a member of a party called the Brexit Party that didn't exist then. That was UKIP. It shares a common one man, right? I get that. The Brexit Party is not UKIP. I wouldn't have joined UKIP. I didn't join UKIP. I joined the Brexit Party. 
And so that's very different. And guilt by association means that you end up in a situation whereby, and, I, and that's being used against me, you know. People actually said to me, if you stand for the Brexit party, we will call you a racist. People in the Labour Party called me a fascist enabler and said that I was responsible for, you know, racist attacks in the UK. I'm a well-known historical anti-racist, right? And that's what... I'm able to defend myself, so it's fine, and I'm being on this podcast. Imagine what it felt like if you were a voter. You just voted in a referendum to leave the European Union, and they called you a xenophobic fascist worse than Nazis, to quote one of the Labour Party leading lights. That contempt, that silencing, that way of trying to delegitimise a political argument by name-calling is exactly the sort of thing that people have just rejected. And I think that it's important that public intellectuals are not intimidated or silenced or told that they can't say something in case somebody thinks that they might be or they get called a nasty name. So I make no apologies. I told Nigel Farage what I thought about that poster. I said it on about every podcast I've done because everybody always asks me if that's the worst thing. By the way, Nigel Farage never deported anyone because he's never had the power. Every single political party in the UK has deported people drag them out of their beds at dawn by the police and put them on planes in the most despicable way and sometimes because of their colour, right? So he's not alone, right, by any stretch. Anti-racism is an important thing for me and being leaving the European Union, voting Brexit was supported by a third of ethnic minorities in the UK because they understood that the European Union's policy towards refugees is to outsource them to Libya and Erdogan's Turkey and let the consequences be damned. You can hide the problem away, play nice, talk anti-racism and be responsible for creating the worst kind of hell for immigrants. So Nigel Farage is not the villain in this story. And that was Claire Fox, soon to be ex-Brexit party MEP for the northwest of England. We'll be back with the usual fare later in the week. Until then, take care.